Hi folks, it's Ian McKenzie. I'd like to welcome you to Political Bites, our podcast series from the School of Politics and International Relations at the University of Kent. In today's episode, we welcome Rubric Bygone. He's a lecturer in the school focusing on American politics. Today, he's going to talk about populism and the US presidential election. Over to you, Rubric. Thanks, Ian. I'm Rubric Began. I'm a lecturer in international relations in the School of Politics and IR at the University of Kent, where I teach modules on international security, foreign policy analysis, and American foreign policy. And most of my research is in that area. So I study American foreign policy, um, and I tend to follow American domestic politics and American elections, mostly in relation to their foreign policy implications. So we're discussing U.S. presidential politics about two months before the 2020 election, Um, In terms of my own research, I do work mainly on American foreign policy. So my interest in American elections is based primarily on that, on how elections end up shaping foreign policy. At the moment, I think the most likely outcome for 2020 is that Trump uh, will lose to Biden. I mean, I think at the moment, Biden has a fairly comfortable lead in the national polls, and he seems to be ahead in the swing states as well. But nothing is certain, of course, and Trump wasn't expected to win in 2016. So it's certainly possible, if not probable, that Trump wins the second term in November. Um, There's a lot that can happen between now and then. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the pandemic, the U.S. economy, potential malfeasance on the part of the Trump administration, voter turnout, all sorts of things. Either way, I think the result of the election will be interpreted in relation to populism, Trump is often seen as this quintessential populist figure, and his rise to power in 2016 was meant to be indicative of this kind of populist wave or this populist turn in global politics. It was also expressed in things like the Brexit vote and the election of Modi in India, Le Pen in France, and the list goes on and on, really. So populism has become, you know, the big political buzzword of our time. There's been a lot of interesting work on this recently in political theory and political science. So Professor Matt Goodwin here in the school has written quite a bit on this, and he also teaches a module on populism in the school. But even in international relations, which is my field, there's been an increased focus on populism in recent years. And this is something that was really kind of previously left to the comparativists. So I think that the concept of populism can be fairly useful in understanding Trump and even certain aspects of his foreign policy, but it does have it does have limits, and it's often used in a kind of sloppy and imprecise way. I first started researching populism in the early part of the 2010s, so this was well before Trump and Brexit. I was interested in exploring how the term populism functioned as a kind of insult in U.S. diplomacy with respect to various Latin American countries. So, for instance, when the Bush and Obama administration, uh, administrations wanted to criticize the governments of Venezuela or Bolivia, they would often use the term populism in their foreign policy rhetoric. So to an extent, then, the populism of, of figures like Chavez in Venezuela or Evo Morales in Bolivia, these individuals were securitized. They were turned into security threats or threats to U.S. interests. One of the first things you appreciate about populism is that it's uh, understood and presented in all sorts of different ways, as is often the case with these concepts. It doesn't have one settled definition. It's interesting because the term populism actually does come out of the American political experience. So in the 1890s, there was a reformist party of workers and farmers in the U.S. known as the People's Party which was also known as the Populist Party, and which advocated a variety of different progressive reforms on labor, you know, the calling for collective bargaining, a shorter work week, um, progressive taxation, that kind of thing. So that the term was once associated with the left in the political spectrum in the U.S. and is now more often associated with the right, I think that does show that populism is fairly a fairly complex uh, phenomenon. I tend to think about populism as a rhetorical style, um, as a way of framing certain issues. 
So the populist actor deploys a certain kind of language to convey a direct link to the people as a coherent category. Uh, so, you know, they use this, this idea of the people, they kind of subsume everyday people or the common folk to this idea of, of the people. And the, and the populist leader then makes appeals to the people by putting themselves on the side of everyday common people against elite interests. And that could be the big banks, it could be the media, it could be the political establishment. And I think this is where foreign policy comes in. So in Trump's case, he's tied the political establishment to what he refers to as globalism, which is a rather vague term that he uses to capture you know, everything from U.S. foreign economic policy in support of globalization to U.S. interventionism and U.S. internationalism more broadly. And so I've written a bit about this in relation to U.S. grand strategy and, and trade policy. But for Trump, this has been almost entirely rhetorical. There hasn't really been much populism at the level of policy itself. There hasn't been much legislation, for example, to suggest a clear populist break with recent Republican administrations, except maybe on the issue of trade. Another of our scholars here at Kent, Andy Rowe, has written about this, that in some ways Trump has been a rather ordinary president in terms of actual policy outcomes. And this is why some would reject the argument that Trump is a populist, and they would right, rightfully, I think, point out that there are other concepts that might provide more insight into Trumpism, you know, nativism, nationalism, um, mercantilism, authoritarianism. And I think this is important because the populist label doesn't really capture all of what Trump is about. And in fact, it may be better to approach populism as something that Trump uses rather than seeing it as something that Trump is. When we approach populism in this way, I think we can see how these kinds of appeals are used across American politics, albeit in different ways. Because, of course, populism isn't something that began with Trump, and nor will it end with Trump. So what does this mean for the 2020 election? A lot of commentators assume that because Trump is now president, he can't effectively use the populist playbook. He's the incumbent, right? So he's part of the establishment. And thus, it's more difficult for him to articulate an anti-establishment message. I think this is true in part. So his you know, drain the swamp slogan from 2016 can't be used in the same way this time around as it was before. Because he's the incumbent, he does have to defend his record on issues like COVID and race relations. He's having trouble defending his record at the moment. It doesn't seem to be working in his, in his favor. It's interesting that he hasn't talked nearly as much about globalism as he did last time around. He hasn't really tried to sell his trade policies through a populist message. And there isn't as much focus on the elites and the establishment as there was in 2016. I think to an extent, the notion of the deep state has filled this void. And here, populism kind of bleeds over into a more explicit conspiratorial view, which I think in some ways is distinct. So the nature of Trump's populist strategy has shifted. His campaign this time around is more Nixonian. There's a stronger focus on law and order. I mean, this was there last time as well, but it's really come to the fore in this election. And it's worth noting that Nixon's brand of politics was understood as representing a populist move away from other strands of Republican ideology associated with, you know, President Eisenhower, for example. So here you have crime and disorder presented as threats to the real you know, law-abiding Americans, but this has been unleashed by the elites. So the populism is still there for Trump. It's been modified in some ways. And overall, I think the rhetoric has been more partisan. So he's been looking to attack the Democratic Party uh, more than the wider political establishment. But this could change down the homestretch of the campaign. The whole uh, drain the swamp mantra from 2016 actually showed up quite late in that campaign. If Biden wins and Trump loses, you can expect that commentators will argue that the populist wave has crested and that politics are returning to some sort of pre-populist normal. I think this would be a mistake to read it in this way. And if Trump wins and Biden loses, it may be in part because of a lack of an effective populist appeal on the part of the Biden campaign. 
So Biden, up to this point, has made pretty good use of his blue-collar image, but the kind of rhetoric and the framing of his campaign has tended to appeal to traditions and values, to decency, national goodness. The antagonism is between Trump and decency, or maybe between Trump and competence. It's not between Trump and the people. So although in some ways the policy proposals of the Democratic Party on things like health care or spending or COVID may lend themselves more to a populist framing, but this really hasn't been at the center of, of the Biden campaign. This may make it more difficult to try and sell these policies, assuming the Democrats do win the White House. Um, so in some ways, I think the 2020 election will be an interesting test case for the status or the direction of populism. Ultimately, there's a danger, I think, in overemphasizing populism. I mean, politics is always about division. It's always about hierarchies, you know, competition between elites and non-elites. And so you have to be careful not to kind of blur populism with politics more generally. But it's equally problematic to think that populism is ephemeral, that it only operates in concert with one particular ideology, or to assume that it will simply disappear when a certain political figure leaves the scene. That's really fascinating. Thanks, Rubric. Well, that's it for episode seven. We'll be back soon with more. If you have a topic you would like to see us discuss, then please contact us via email paulirnews at kent.ac.uk or connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, the details of which you can find in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.